yard touchdown, running in the first place for number one. Harris drops back, fades to the left, pressure on, and he goes down. Ja'Garrett Davis gets home, and the all-black sideline explodes here in Hamilton. Torn to five, it went through Marcus Dale's hands, and Kyron Moore, the presence of mind to catch it, and step out of bounds at the five with 20 seconds to go. Pressure loads it up, goes down the field, taking a shot into the end zone. He caught it. Touchdown, Tigertown. Brandon Banks, how did he do it? How did he get in the end zone for the Argos last weekend? Eh, see that? They'll uh, mix and match there for the one and only Speedy B in double blue. Welcome to the breakdown, everybody. Marshall Ferguson here with you, as always, on Canadian Football Perspective, brought to you by our good friends at Fox 40. You can, of course, start your season off right with products from our partners at Fox 40. Outfit your coaching staff, custom logo, Fox 40 whistles, gear, coaching boards, and more. Visit fox40shop.com. Use the code CFP15 at checkout for 15% off of your entire order. I am at my parents' house in Kingston this week for the recording of the breakdown and a really all podcast that you'll see here on CFP this week because I'm headed Friday night to call the Ottawa Calgary game capital on the other side of the zoom as always at DT on OB who will have the call coming up for you tonight as I'm going to post this Thursday afternoon uh, it will be of course the Alouettes against the Winnipeg Blue Bombers who I feel like I have to introduce the team that you covered DT like this ladies and gentlemen after 12 rounds against the best competition in the West Division, the BC Lions and the Calgary Stampeders, we go to the scorecards. And by a final score of 104 to 69. Yeah. Still undefeated champions of the world, the Winnipeg yeah. Blue Bar. That That's the actual score total between BC and Calgary this year. The best competition for them in the West Division as they remain undefeated without a bye week, playing a road-heavy schedule, 104 to 69 is how they have beaten the best teams in front of them in their own division. What the hell, DT? And I have to imagine the score difference between the worst teams they've played, Ottawa, Ottawa, Hamilton, Toronto, Edmonton, is not nearly that much. 14, 13, 7, like it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is so crazy. And we talked to Zach Kolaris about it. He's like, I, I don't really notice their records. Like, really? Because we noticed that you absolutely murdidly murdered BC and beat Calgary by a touchdown twice, and then seven completions in a win over Edmonton. He said, with his nose kind of bristled up like he was smelling something bad. Edmonton by seven completions. It's so crazy. Um, we, people have asked me about, well, do you think there are trap games? I'm like, I don't know that I think there are trap games, but. They're, they don't perform – all three phases don't perform against teams that they should absolutely clobber. And then against teams they shouldn't have – who would have thought they'd absolutely clobber BC by three scores? But all three phases worked. Pretty much all three phases worked in the Calgary wins too. It's, the Bombers are, are weird, and uh, it's, it's great for covering though, right, Marsh? Because it's an 8-0 team, and they're unbelievable, but we, there's stuff for us to pick at when we, right. when we try to project the next 10 games. And the thing that I love about them is I believe that a dominant team, the likes of which we honestly have not seen in a, a span of 26-ish games like this since the dynasty of Edmonton in the 80s, like uh, really, honestly, in the regular season, it's been basically since that long based on the, some of the stuff that John Perlberg from TSN has sent out, is it's great for the game to have heroes and villains. And it's not mutually exclusive. Like if you have a team that, 
uh, is winning a ton of football games, you would think, well, they're the heroes. They're the, no, no, no. To the other eight teams across the league, it's like, we got to take down the big bad bombers. But the thing is, Winnipeg, to their fans, are the most likable people like Kalaros and Schoen and Ellingson and Jeffcoat and Jefferson and Big Hill and on and O'Shea and Walters and on and on and on. They're like the greatest people ever. So you have this incredible dynamic where it's almost like when MJ and the Bulls would go into places and be like, we hate you because you're the best and we want to take you down. But Chicago is like, oh, no, we ride or die with these dudes. Like, this is our team. And it creates such a great dynamic in this league where it's not, I don't know who's the best in the West. There's really nobody who's separating themselves. Who knows? I don't know. Maybe Calgary will win one week and then they'll get blown out the next week by Ottawa. And then, you know, Saskatchewan will get this shocking loss and then they'll come back and beat Winnipeg the next week. It's like parody is good, but I really love the way the CFL is shaping up this year where you still have parody. You still have Calgary and BC and Saskatchewan scrapping Edmonton, the bomb of, of the West division. The East division looks like it's going to have parody all year long where the games are all going to come down to essentially like the final minute or two of the game for most of them. But amongst all that parody, you have this team at the top that's just looking over everybody and going, you guys going to catch us or not? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's surprising. And I, it was Honestly, it hasn't happened the way I thought, but I thought in the preseason that Winnipeg was a rung above everybody else. I thought Winnipeg was the best team by a significant margin. Not so much that I was taking them at plus 225 to win the Grey Cup because those odds are kooky town. But I, I just thought talent-wise, they were that much better than other teams and they had proven for the 2022 season, they were that much better. Boldy by Mitchell's looked better than I thought he might. However... That, that ain't perfect. Um, it's not perfect in Calgary. His combination with Kamar Jordan and Reggie Bagleton and company, it did not in any way look like the, like I thought it would. I thought Bagleton was a steal at $165,000 is what we're talking about and hasn't kind of played out that way. Uh, BC, I thought, was a looming threat. If Rourke was even average, he's been far above average. And they're a threat. Like I'm That home-and-home home with the Bombers later in the season – I'm super excited to see that because BC is going to figure going to figure out okay how are they able to get Shown and Ellingson isolated on guys and absolutely abuse them so badly? What will they do about that? And then there's still six four receivers against five nine defensive backs when the BC Lions offense is on the field. So I don't think as much as as much as the Bombers two weeks from now we're talking about a ten and zero team heading into the bye week is my has been my prediction. There's still some regular season challenges left, even though Calgary is now in the rearview mirror and, and really will not catch them for first place. Right. And I uh, I was asked by TSN this week to do basically my faux version of the details that you used to do, uh, where they said, hey, throw some numbers around and give us you know some information on how to beat the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. <laughs> I was like, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I don't think anybody really truly. I mean, so basically, oh, what I, I got some, I got some for you. Yeah, what you, I did, what what I did was just throw basically like a rough roadmap of if you're gonna do it, you better survive the first quarter because when they jump all over you and they get out in front, it's over. If you're gonna beat them, you better be comfortable playing in close games. Calgary is comfortable playing in close games. They've got the mental fortitude and the maturity to be like, you know what, we can play in a one score game against them. Other teams, they get in a one score game, it's like. Oh my God, you guys actually, you were actually in this. Like you can tell on the sideline, like even BC, even though they got jumped on when they fought back into that game, you could tell that there was a little bit of that on the sideline. Like we, we can do this. 
we can <laughs> and then it was like no because if you're if your outlook on life is hey i'm shocked we're still in it it's like you're dead because they're ah. just going to kill you if you're not comfortable playing in those tight games where every little play is going to matter and the last thing that i threw out there was this simple idea that like you have to be able to prevent zach from having magic on second and long especially in the fourth quarter like that's and those are the only three things i mean there's more that they could dive into because obviously i was limited for time but yeah. those that's the simple roadmap. And at the end of the piece, I basically said, oh, by the way, if you're going to have to do those three things and a whole lot more to beat them, you're going to have to probably do it at IG Field against a rested team because they have all three bye weeks remaining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then they're probably earning themselves late season buys and a first round playoff buy. And, and, and uh, it's, it's interesting. I was doing the Zach Caleros and, and Winnipeg second down and long numbers. Yep. 41% of the time they've converted on second and long this season. They've been in the bunch. 41%. The only team that's more is somehow the Toronto Argonauts. And I don't know that I can explain how the Argos have converted 43% of second and longs, but know, that's where right? we are. <laughs> I don't I don't get that one. But someone, someone asked me, I was on uh, the Flight Deck podcast, the Montreal Alouettes podcast. Yep. What can Montreal do to win this one? And I, I came up with a couple of things. Let me let me throw them by. Let me run them by you because yeah. they they play into the fact the Bombers have only had thirty plays run against them in the red zone this season, which is a third lower than any other team on a per game basis. It's it's crazy. Uh, one, you, you're going to need to hit big plays, and I don't care how you hit them, but Geno Lewis hit some big plays. Jake Winicky emerge. Jake Winicky is under 200 yards receiving at this Dude. point. Anyway, the, I yeah. don't want to interrupt where you're going with this. I just need to say that Dwayne Ford had one of the greatest low-key jokes that I have ever been privileged to stand next to in a play-by-play booth with somebody where I referenced Jake Winicky in that Thursday night game against Audible we were doing together. And I said, well, you know, he he was known as touchdown Jake, but he doesn't have one so far on the season. And then Dwayne just goes, now he's just, Jake. <laughs> it was like yes. the driest sense of humor and Dwayne didn't even laugh at his own joke. And I was like, man, that is That's... like such like highbrow comedy ability to slip that in and just move on with the broadcast. And it took everything in me not to just stop and laugh and be like, dude. <laughs> That's very good. That's, and I can just hear it from your description. I can just hear uh, Dwayne hitting that. That's but awesome. Yeah, so, so Jake uh, Winicky obviously has plays. to emerge. Yeah, yeah. You, you need big plays, right? Because when you get near the when you get near the red zone, the bombers are going to shut it down. So you need big plays. Jeshrin Antwi has a couple of what fifty plus yard runs this season. That would be fantastic. You're going to need to hit big plays. Trevor Harris isn't exactly the quarterback I I would want to be counting on for big plays. That's more of Vernon Adams thing right with the with the fluctuations but that's one uh two if any point in these next two games i say david cote 26 yard field goal montreal is going to lose the game you cannot kick field goals when if you get into the red zone against the bombers you can't settle for field goals you just can't and i get it it's antithetical to what coaches do they want points score point if you get field position against the bombers you have to maximize it None of this three nonsense because Calgary, two great drives last week. They're up 6 nothing. The Bombers, one great drive. They, they're leading 7-6. Edmonton, great, fantastic drives. 3-3-3-1. Three, 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 they lose 24-10. You, know, you need to score touchdowns and stop whizzing away. If you manage to get field position on this, on this Bombers team, 
don't just whiz it away. Go for it. And I get it. You might fail and you might turn the ball over on downs on their eight-yard line and you might feel bad about it. You're going to feel worse if you lose 24 to nine. Let's just say that. You just can't do it. So those are the two that if, and I don't know how an offensive coordinator does that or schemes that. I'm not pretending I know that. But those are the things Montreal will need in these next two weeks to, to have a chance to beat the Bombers because uh, Dink and Dunk isn't isn't going to get it done because the Bombers' offense will respond, you know, in that last drive of the second quarter to take the lead at halftime, and you'll never see them again. And I uh, there's two things that come to mind hearing you talk about that. One is Bo Levi Mitchell in the post game last week, which I don't understand why we all ran with the quote of like Bo Levi Mitchell defiant and lost to the Bombers. I was like. What do you want him to do? Come out and be like, yeah, we suck. We'll never beat them again. Like he's the starting quarterback of the team. That's a challenger in the West division. I love that. We, we've been covering professional sports for a hundred damn years. And anytime somebody says, if you guys want to crown him, you can crown him. We're like, Ooh, juicy. And it's like, no, like there's no championship yet. He's saying something factual. So, but he did come out and say in that post-game press conference, something to the tune of like, we have to make, our shot plays count and you could see the frustration. And I spoke to him yesterday on, on zoom because we were getting ready for the Calgary Ottawa game. And I said like your body language on some of those deep ball misses or those throws. Cause Bo is, is one of the rare quarterbacks in the CFL who will just put the ball to a spot and trust that his receiver knows exactly where the football is going to end up. And it's not even necessarily like a fade ball or something like that. It's like, he'll scramble out of the pocket. His receiver will be looking over his right shoulder and Bo will just throw it over his left shoulder and be like, Hey man, like, you should go get that. And if they don't respond or react, or if they don't see the game the same way that he does, it looks like a really bad incompletion. But I've watched every throw of Bose for basically like the last six, seven years very closely. And so I'm like, oh no, I see what he's trying to do there. He's essentially trying to teach his receivers how to play with him. Uh, mm-hmm. And so he mentioned last week that they didn't make enough of their shot plays to Begleton and, uh, and to Jordan and on and on. So that goes to the point you're making where it's like, Bo basically felt like if they hit a couple of those, that's a different game. And then the other one is when you're talking about Geno Lewis being the big play guy, I totally agree. And this, this take will seem super stupid if he goes crazy in the next two games and is able to make all these jump ball catches, especially, you know, cause he's, he really, I thought was dominant against the Hamilton Tiger cats and their, their loss against Hamilton last Thursday. But I looked at his target chart. And I looked at the percentage of targets that he got in that hand. He had 15 targets in that game against Hamilton. And for me, Montreal's offense feels so limited right now. Like, I understand that Cam Julian Grant and Herjimayala are coming on. And I love watching those guys play. I understand that without William Stanback, they're going between Fletcher and Antwi. And those guys are doing their job. And I think up front, they're doing a pretty good job. But the Trevor Harris experience is very much the crossers check downs flat routes play action like it's all the same stuff we always talk about with him but now he's got this incredible beast on the outside of Gino Lewis and he's just putting it up like there there was a, a rub route concept where basically like a two-man concept that every team right down to peewee runs where the wide receiver basically runs at the outside shoulder of the halfback and hopes for a switch as the inside receiver in that two-man concept runs it out and as soon as they get the switch you've got leverage to run to the corner like, we used to run that when I was at McMaster, and I've seen it on tape everywhere. And I tweeted because I was sitting in the stands watching this where, like, Gino doesn't really run a great route, doesn't really get the switch, doesn't really access the leverage properly, 
comes out way too high. Trevor misses it too high. Who cares? Geno's a freak, goes up, gets it. It's a 25-yard gain. It's like, what a cheat code for them to have (laughs) plays like that where it's like, you guys did not execute that properly whatsoever, but he's a monster, so he gets away with it. Then, this week on Twitter, I said, hey, if anybody out there wants to see some target charts for receivers, let me know, and I'll throw this out for whoever. And somebody said Geno. So I put it together, and his whole target chart is like, yeah, like little thinking dunk crossers and the Trevor Harris game down the right sideline within two yards of the sideline, 20 plus yards, they are hitting at a higher clip than anybody in the league. And it's not even close. And that is literally just Trevor saying, Hey dude, like your catch radius is dumb. You got big, strong hands. I'll throw it high. You just go and get it. Some of it's back shoulder, but most of it is like throwing it over the top. And this is what's crazy. I, I looked at Gino's target chart and I thought, wow, that's that's a really unusually high success rate on 20 plus yards right next to the sideline, which makes sense when you're watching the games because I can think of the number of times, including the final couple minutes in Hamilton where he went and got one of those. And then I put together all targets for the entire year so far in the CFL. And that exact zone where Gino is having such an anomaly of success, the league-wide number was way higher. But I looked at everybody other than Gino. They're all average. Gino Lewis and Trevor Harris are completing so many passes on that fade ball 20-plus down the right sideline. They're literally skewing the numbers for the entire league on a specific part of the field. Wow. Like, that's the impact that they are having. And so when you talk about big plays with Gino Lewis and trying to go and and make a difference in this ballgame, it's going to happen in one of two ways. He's going to dominate to basically Trevor's left-hand side with double moves, wheels, slant and goes, like stutter posts, whatever, or they're just going to throw it as high as they can on that right sideline, and Gino's going to go and try and make a play. And if they miss it four times, it's kind of like the NBA, the idea of sprawl ball. It's like if they miss it four times, that's fine. We'll throw 10 of them. And if he catches six of them, we win the football game is kind of their mentality. So I know it's a long-winded way to get to kind of a rebuttal on, on your two points, but Gino being the key in the, in the big play monster to that. I'm just intrigued by what Montreal's doing because they really don't have much spice in that offense other than, hey, mm-hmm. we have this dude who's a total monster on the outside. Let's try to access it in, a, in a, uh, a way that nobody else can. Yeah, I just wanted to pull up expected completion percentage. Uh, when you say to the right side, I assume those are all boundary shots. I mean, for the boundary part, field yeah. is, in, is in flux for this season and what it means, but yeah. yeah. 41%, 38%. But when you get over 30 yards, it's completed 31% of the time that he's pulling down big numbers. Um, if, if, if it's sustainable, it will be something to watch. Here's, here's something someone brought to me a couple times along the way. Um, Montreal can't run the ball without William Stanback. And I thought, well, that's not true. Like, whether they choose to is a different deal. And I wonder how much psychology plays into this. But Jeshra Antwi, 70 yarder in that game where Stanback got hurt, set another 50 plus yarder. Like Antwi's busting runs. Walter Fletcher, six yards a carry. Uh, but Walter Fletcher has only in five games 19 carries. Like, I, I get it. And, and we're dealing with the same perception in Winnipeg of like, well, it's not Andrew Harris. Sure. But if you produce like William Stanback or Andrew Harris, why aren't you getting the ball more? Like coaches, I, I I fully believe coaches go, oh, it's not that guy. We can't do it, which to me fundamentally misunderstands what the running game is and that the running game is not primarily the running back. It's not even secondarily the running back. It's kind of third the running back. It's 
the guys opening holes in the scheme you you choose to to get the guy the ball with. I I hate to advocate for the run game, but if you're abandoning the run game in Montreal because Standback isn't there, I love William Standback, but you've got two guys who have already done it, and you're going to try third tonight with Tavy and Feaster. Of if you believe in the run game, run the ball. If you believe in it, do it. And it's always funny to me when coaches believe in things and then do the complete opposite because <laughs> something has happened. When we want to establish the run, but we lost standback. Yeah, you know what? The other guys can run the ball too, pretty well too. So get on that, Montreal. Eat up some clock. Take some, do your thing and give Trevor his spot to do it. And if you believe it opens play action, okay, well then there you go. There's your shot for for uh, Gino Lewis. But yeah, Montreal's a weird team. Uh, the, which makes me believe the East is weird. I thought Montreal would be the worst team in the East. That was my prediction preseason. They're the team that has the best point differential in the East right now. They're minus two, whereas some of the other teams are, like Toronto in first place, has a terrible point difference. I, what it, what are the Alouettes as a whole, Marsh? Yeah, I, and I'm with you on that because their defensive identity I found to be a little bit lacking as well. And, and I pass interference is that yeah, their identity? Yeah, yes, that's <laughs> a, that's certainly been a challenge for them. But yeah, I I think I would I'll, I'll leave Winnipeg Montreal with this final thought, which is that when you talk about the running game and what is the running game and how do you want to access it and all the rest, like Calvillo calling the shots there now and how much as a player and how much I've seen him as a coach with the Montreal Caravan try to access those flat throws and the extended handoffs and the like with Trevor in, in the backfield, AC calling the plays and your bell cow and stand back out. It feels like their identity offensively is essentially Trevor throwing it behind the line of scrimmage and Gino fade balls. Like that's, mm-hmm. that's really what's coming down to And even when you talk about quick game, like they're getting it to K on Julian Grant and, and Herjie Mayala in the screen game. There's really not a lot of like, Jake Winnicky sitting down between zones at 15 yards or in-breaking routes coming from... Uh, I actually think Reggie White Jr. has been really good this year. Um, he's been a very nice piece for them that I didn't really expect. But mm-hmm. very very reminiscent to me of the way that Quan Bray kind of played that like third fiddle in their offense a couple of years ago. Um, and, it, and I think Reggie White has really come into his own this year and been productive and made some nice catches where the ball was a little behind or a little low or whatever. But yeah, their identity is keep possession of the football with the extended handoffs, run it when you need to uh, beat you over the face with Dominique Davis and short yardage, which by the way, that dude standing at field level in Hamilton, I forgot how big he was in pads is the weirdest thing. I'm like, there's no way. And I actually talked to the Montreal equipment manager. Who's a 19 year old kid who's playing over at uh, Vanier college in, in CJEP. And he came over and introduced himself and said, Hey, I've seen some of your stuff and I enjoy it. And I said, thanks. And then we started talking a bit and I said, man, I forgot how big Dominique Davis is. He goes, I know, right? And we give him like a medium jersey. He like, he's so lean that he like squeezes his pads over this medium jersey. And then he's like all of six foot five with these big lanky arms. I'm like, he's just such a funny body type. But I mean, that's really what they they are at this point. And I don't think that's going to change because Trevor hasn't really changed in close to a decade. So yeah. if you're Montreal this is what you're going to be based on the decision that you made of the personnel you're going with and the coaching staff you have and the, the receivers that are in play. And I guess, you know, not to wish evil upon anybody, but my concern would be because injuries do happen and guys usually have to miss a game or two. What is that offense? Not without standback, without Gino. 
Like if they don't have any threat over the top, my yep. fear my fear is that I'm calling a game in the East Division late in the year, like Ottawa Montreal, who I think I have back to back in like October or early November or something, where everybody is just down close to the line of scrimmage because they're like, oh, we you, we don't respect anybody can beat us over the top other than Gino. And you just get into this rock fight within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage where it's like play action, flip it to the flats, tackle loss of two, play action, flip it to the other side, loss of two. It's just like, ooh, I don't want to watch that football game. So I hope Gino no. stays healthy, and I hope that they continue to try and evolve their offense, certainly. That, that would be uh... – that would be good because at the moment, uh, when the East Lady team is at three and three, I don't have a, a whole lot of hopes for what's happening over there. And with Ottawa taking on Calgary this week, mm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm I've been the big stand for the Ottawa Red Blacks will win the East, which is kind of hard when they lose their quarterback and start zero and six. But one and six, Marsh, can we manufacture any kind of upset, or uh, is Calgary just going to eat Caleb Evans lunch this week? It's a huge challenge for him, certainly. And from talking yeah. to Caleb and from talking to Lapo yesterday, they essentially said uh, Calgary blitzes more than most teams on first down, and then they're just going to drop a bunch of people out on second down and make you have to be patient. And I'm like, oh, man, as a young quarterback, that's exhausting. Because usually what ends up happening is a team will play base on first down, for the most part, not always, but play base on first down and then force you to earn your money throwing into blitz or traffic or dropping nine or whatever on second down. Calgary, the mentality of their defense with Brett Mons, their defensive coordinator, is let's challenge you mentally on first down, put you in bad situations, we'll control the tempo of the game, and then we will be the ones who will sit here on second down and wait for you to throw us the football because we're going to drop nine people out. And yeah. as, as a young quarterback, that's really di- the, the reason this is difficult is. If you're just telling me on second down, they're going to drop a bunch of people out. That's annoying. That's tough. I played against that when Western ran this cover four shell a ton where they would drop everybody out and be like, throw us a pick. See what happens if you throw vertical. It was the patience of that is just straight up annoying. The second thing is on first down, like you get so used to, okay, it's first down. We can run the rock. And Lapo has been really heavy run on first down this year with Powell since he's been back healthy. If they yeah. decide to do that and they're running directly into a wall of stampeders and you're putting your quarterback in second down, that means that now Ottawa in this game has to be aggressive on first down, throwing the football, RPO, quarterback run, whatever it is. They have to attack knowing that they are going to be getting blitzed. And really, this game, I think, is going to be determined on first down and the decisions that Caleb Evans makes on first down against that defense as they come after him. I just wanted to pull up... Uh... You maybe think of Ottawa on first down. No, oh, third best in the league. Eight yards an attempt. Oh, yards per pass play. Third best when they pass on first down. But a bump up first and ten. Oh, they end up in second and long a ton. Oh, yeah. Fifty-one percent of the time when they hey, run buddy, the ball, they end up from, in second and long. From oh. the, the mouth of the guy who has unintentionally become the national television voice of the Ottawa Red Blacks, because I seem to be doing all of their games. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can confirm to you that I have consistently been saying, first down, wow, what a great pickup on second and 12 by Caleb Evans. Oh, look, William Powell wearing into a wall. Uh, th- there's been a whole lot of that, oh. especially that Hamilton game, the Montreal mm-hmm. game. And they're trying to they're trying to carve something out with it. But man, there's been a couple of times where it's been like, guys, this ain't working. Like, I'd rather take my shot throwing the football on first down with Caleb than trying to just like kill clock and get Powell beat up. One of the things I saw in Calgary, and I didn't see as much in the second game against the Bombers, was, and I thought this has got to be absolutely confounding, and it gave me a ton of respect for 
what would have been the four defensive ends playing in that game. Obviously, right. Jeff Coach Jefferson, but Lemon and Fuller and Arimelade. Uh Calgary blitzes two guys from the opposite side of Arimelade, and then he fakes and then jumps back into coverage. And you go, there's a few guys in the CFL that could do that, and that's got to be just an incredible pain in the ass for for quarterback <laughs> because oh hey well if you're if okay it's it's overloaded this side so the other side's open and oh no there's a guy who's robbing me of the thing the easy thing I think I have so if a rim, if you're calling a rimalade with an interception or whatever it is a Calgary does a nice job in in disguising these things and and honestly as a broadcaster they're forcing me to think I can't even imagine the quarterback that they're trying to you know, take his head off and yeah. he's trying to, you know, keep his job, what they're doing to, to that guy. Like Calgary, Calgary is really good. Like I haven't even talked about some of the real weapons on that team as they get their defensive backfield in order. Trey Roberson in a six game though is a real thing. Well, I, I felt uh, like I cursed the Stampeders because I have this bad habit where obviously I don't call a lot of games from teams in the West, like the odd one that comes into the East division and it seems like every time that a team from the West comes in, there's a marquee player who I'm really excited to watch play live. And then they get put on the one of the six game. And I'm like, man, I wanted to watch him. And when I saw the rosters come out for Calgary, I'm like, I really wanted to watch Kadeem Carey and Trey Roberson. And I have great respect for Sean McEwen. And they're all down and injured. There's seven, yep. there's seven roster changes from the game against Winnipeg last week to the game against Ottawa this week for the Calgary Stampeders. Like, that was a that was a battle that they just went through at home trying to send a message that no we can play with these guys we can beat them and it cost them not just in the win loss column but they got beat up and they yeah. lost some really important guys for what seems like not a short period of time yeah seeing McEwen go down they were stabilizing his head at one point but it turned out to not be that but it was interesting i haven't had a chance to go back and analyze it i don't know if you have but late in that game roberson gets hurt on a play and then they had they had to shuffle in their defensive backfield. Whether it was rough and they bounced out the corner, I feel like calling the game. I thought, oh, Winnipeg is going to abuse this, and Winnipeg is going to know who to pick on because they had uh, what was it? Buka had to go in at safety, which moved Wilson down, and like Winnipeg's going to know where this is up. And all of a sudden, Shones in the in the end zone near the the jumbotron. I'm like, I made a mental note of I need to go back and look at exactly what they did with that. Re, you know, reshaped back six once Roberson went down, and what they're going to do, you know, for the next six weeks with Roberson down. That's a real tough. That's a stinger because it's, it's not the strongest back six in the league. Dozier's in this week, which is nice. I, I think Brandon Dozier's a hell of a player, but their their front six to me is much stronger than their back six, even with Moxie at full steam and Dozier now back off six game. But uh, yeah, I'm curious to see what uh, what perhaps Winnipeg showed. Uh, late late in that game after Roberson got hurt. The last thing that I wanted to throw at you in this episode, DT, is that from going through and tracking it, it felt like there was a lot more teams going empty last weekend. Uh, and, you know, so three by three, oh, four, three, three by three, four by two is your base. And, you know, sometimes team, teams will go, you know, three by two, but with a tight end. So technically they're empty because they put somebody on the line of scrimmage. So um, I looked at the the empty usage rate across the entire league through the first seven weeks of the year, 4.2% of the time, teams are in empty. Okay, they're emptying out of the backfield. In week eight, that was more than doubled to 8.5%. And it was strange because it's like, I'm watching the first game, Hamilton-Montreal, and I'm like, well, Hamilton goes empty more than a lot of other teams. So, you know, this this isn't out of the realm of possibility. 
Montreal did it a couple times, and I was like, eh, that's you know, you maybe they're good for one a game, but they were like two or three, I think. Then I did the next game, and it was the Friday night Saskatchewan BC, and I'm like, man, Saskatchewan is like really going. They actually went empty 15.5 percent of the time last week, which is more than double the double wow. that I just mentioned that was league average this week. BC, one play in six. Wow. BC did it a couple of times, and I started watching, and I'm like. This is not one game. This is the entire theme of the week for some reason. And week eight is, hey, everybody's just going empty. It's the early 90s in the CFL. Congratulations. And uh, and which I loved and it made me excited. But then I asked Paul Lapolis, and I just, I want your thoughts on this to close out the episode. I asked Lapo, hey, I, I noticed this number. It, it's more than double the entire season. Do you have any explanation for why a singular week would have that kind of jump? And he said, well, the only one I can really think of from our perspective is that when teams are getting put in second and, and long, the other defense is dropping out usually a bunch of guys, whether it be eight or nine. And he said, usually there's this mentality on offense. If we're going to set the tone, we're going to determine. He said, but in this case, if they're dropping nine, I'm not going to keep six, seven protectors in the backfield. I'm not going to keep my running back in. If you're going to drop a bunch of guys, I have to answer what the defense is doing by spreading it out and giving my quarterback as many opportunities to find a target as humanly possible. And so Lapo was basically saying, hey, if teams are getting put in second and long a bunch in this week, maybe it was just this anomaly where they had to go ahead and spread it out and find as many receivers to give their quarterback the best chance for success. But it was just wild looking at the numbers on that. In, in a single week, it doubled the first seven weeks of the season. Interesting. I was just looking at the Bombers. I'm not fully up to date across the league, but uh, but up the Bombers are blitzing 30% of the time in second. The Bombers aren't a super heavy blitz team. They're a will rush four in innovative ways team with Big Hill and three and a three man front. I, I'm be curious. I got a couple of weeks of catch up to do to, to know that for sure. But yeah, it's, it's I've seen some second longs go real wrong though. Like, yeah, if if Taylor Cornelius to Mike Jones can connect on second and 15 for a first down, and you know, uh. Yeah, I'd be. I wonder. I wonder if we. I don't entirely know what to make of that, except yeah. that there's going to be some second and fifteen and second and twenty conversions if you are going to drop out like that and, and just give quarterbacks time because Kalaris is going to cut you up. Uh, okay, I'm trying to think. Nathan Rourke is going to stand there all damn day and oh, look yeah. at four receivers three times a piece for twelve reads <laughs> before he finally decides. You know what? Okay, now I got my thing. Like, uh, yeah, Rourke still super impressive. Yeah, still yes. very impressive. Okay, yeah, Not, I, I, I hope, can't wait for the two of I hope that it uh, it continues to happen. I hope that we see a little bit more innovation in it all, and we will have it all broken down for you coming up next week, right here on the breakdown. Thank you so much for joining. Make sure you check out DT coming up tonight at DT on OB is where you can follow along the most knowledgeable man in the Canadian Football League without question. Privilege to be on the other side of this Zoom. DT, have a great call tonight, man. Thanks, brother.